0: wellnesscouch.com streaming wellness into your lives
1: this is that paleo show with your hosts Stephanie Wozelik, Dr. Jana James and Dr. Brett Hill
2: Welcome to That Paleo Show, making the paleo lifestyle easy and accessible for everyone. I'm Stephanie Wozlik, I'm Dr. Yana James.
0: And I'm Dr. Brett Hill. We
2: talk a lot about fat and protein on the show, but I think it's about time that we got a little bit more in-depth into the issues surrounding sugar. To help us out, we have none other than Dr. Rod Taylor on the show today. Rod is an Australian anesthesiologist and anti-sugar activist with an interest in low-carb diets to optimize our weight and our health. Not only has Rod been involved in scientific studies involving sugar reduction and weight, but he's also actively seeking to other doctors and moving towards a low-carb lifestyle and is responsible for low-carb down under. We need more guys like him on our side, and we can't wait to hear his wisdom today. So welcome to the show, Rod.
3: Hey, thanks a lot, guys.
2: Great to have you with us. <laughs> so it's rare that... Um, you know, that doctors are kind of understanding more and more about dietary changes in health, but how did you kind of have your original aha moment, uh, as a doctor to kind of take the look at sugar and as, uh, as beneficial, to, well, not beneficial to your health, the opposite of beneficial to your health. <laughs>
3: Well, someone passed me a copy of David Gillespie's Sweet Poison, David the Queensland Lawyer. Uh And when I read that book, I thought, oh, my goodness, sugar is the problem. And that was about five years ago now. And I think for the main part, that remains just as true today as it was then. I cut my sugar intake... Uh, and, and me, and very quickly dropped from about 80 kilos down to about 72 kilos. It happened very quickly. I'd been creeping on weight. I'm in my early sixties and I'd been the weight had been sort of coming on over about the last decade, and I was very pleased to see it um, drop off. Uh, that gave me—I was a BMI of about 26 to start with—and ended up at about 23. I'm about 174 centimetres tall, so that was uh, that was how I got into it.
1: Yeah, great. It's a, it's an excellent place to start. Um what, was there something specific in that that made you realise how detrimental sugar is? Because I know we all go on this fat bandwagon, so what was the turning point for, for you? Was it the biochemistry of that?
3: I think it was, we clearly, uh, all Wonder what's caused the obesity epidemic and also the raft of diseases that go with it. Uh, I work with a lot of other interesting doctors and we've been tossing this around for years and years. And this sugar thing appeared to tick a lot of the boxes to explain what could be going wrong. So, yes, it was definitely in part the biochemistry, but it was also in part... Understanding that Australians average over thirty teaspoons of added sugar a day. Oh,
2: um,
3: I think really when people incredible. when people hear that, they say, "Oh, you know, that couldn't be true."
1: And they say, it "I is. don't drink thirty cups of tea, so it can't be me that's doing yeah, that." <laughs> that's
3: right. At, at one stage, not long after that, I got interested in walking up and down supermarket aisles, picking up products, and seeing how much sugar was in them. Mm. And what made it easier for me was having learned that four grams of sugar is a teaspoon. Uh, And then I could start looking around and say, wait a minute, this little 200-mil yogurt, that's got 24 teaspoons, 24 grams of sugar, six teaspoons sugar. You know, that is just scary. And, of course, the same happens with you know, fruit juices and, of course, soft drink. Um, But sugar was definitely there in places and amounts that I hadn't expected it to be.
0: Hmm. And so, Rod, why do you think this is taking so long to, I guess, come through into the mainstream and even into, I guess, the medical profession? Because obviously you've said that, you know, yourself and a number of other doctors are really, you know, all over this and have been for quite a while. Uh, But it seems the mainstream is still very much of the opinion that it's all about fat and not necessarily sugar. And, you know, we look at recent articles from the Heart Foundation and all that sort of stuff. Why is it taking so long for this sugar sort of hypothesis to come through into more of a mainstream idea?
3: I guess it takes time for people to get comfortable with the idea of change. Um, I've just spent the weekend up at a conference of general practitioners, uh, and th- this is a pretty switched-on group. I gave them a talk on fructose a year ago. Uh, but they're still a little bit slow to really take it on, even though they agree with everything you say. And it constitutes a huge change for them to stop telling their patients to cut the fat and tell their patients to cut the sugar. I, I do think we've made enormous strides in the last few years. When I first started talking about sugar five years ago, people looked at me a little bit strangely and said, it's just energy you burn it off and i think it's not really when you start to get a more of an understanding of the biochemistry uh and the problems of sugar and i might just summarize that if is the problem with sugar is we turn it into fat <laughs> and people don't appreciate that so uh but when they do appreciate it that they they uh, cut their consumption considerably yeah
1: So is it just that we turn it into fat that's the problem or is there more stuff that sugar does to the body that's detrimental?
3: Yes, I think the thing we should be most concerned about is the elevated level of... There are two elements here. There's glucose and there's fructose. Now, the sugar we consume is essentially a 50% mixture of glucose and fructose. And I think they both have their problems. Fructose, particularly, when you absorb it, goes straight to the liver and we do convert that to fat. Glucose goes around in the bloodstream, is picked up by all sorts of cells. But if there's a lot of it in the bloodstream, then a lot of it will get into cells and... The body doesn't like to have too high a level of glucose. of So we have this hormone called insulin, which regulates it and brings it down and enables the glucose to be carried into cells. And when it gets to the cells, the best way and the most sort of cost-effective and efficient way to store it is as fat. Yes, we do store some of it as glycogen in the liver and we store some of it as glycogen in the muscle. But there's a limit to how much we can do that. And when those... When those stores are filled up, then fat is the obvious place for it to go. And we don't like being fat. We don't like having big bellies. It's not a good look. Um, and not only the weight and the appearance, but there are all sorts of other downsides to the glucose. So one of the things that happens is glucose sticks on other proteins, and this has been implicated in unpleasant conditions such as Alzheimer's disease. So, I, I think in, in dietary science, I, I think an elevated blood glucose, uh, because we consume too much sugar. I'm not. I won't get into refined carbohydrates at this point, um, although they are very important. Uh, But I think the first place to start is getting your sugar level down. Um, With a a persistently elevated level of blood glucose, our pancreas works harder and produces more insulin uh, in order to control that glucose. Mm -hmm. At some point, the cells jack up to these higher amounts of glucose that they're being asked to store away, and they become insulin-resistant. The pancreas responds by producing even more insulin. And that keeps on going until to a point where the pancreas, the, particularly the islet cells in the pancreas which produce the insulin, start to get worn out. Uh, and at that point, we are well on the way to diabetes. Yeah. So I think we can see sugar as a huge problem and the mechanism or probably the best postulated mechanism I can see um, is that this elevated blood glucose level uh, gives us problems from fat storage and also sticking onto proteins to give us uh, other degenerative problems around the body.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, we know that we've talked here just about glucose um, maybe we could talk about sucrose and fructose and just that there's, there's a lot of other names for sugar. So when people are looking at the grocery store, what name should they be watching out for?
3: Um, well, uh, I think probably sucrose uh, is is a double sugar and that breaks down into the glucose sugar and the fructose sugar. So I think Total sugar is quite a good thing to look at on a food label, Um, but there are a number of other things. I'd be um, yeah, I'd 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 pass this one back to you. There are obviously things like maltodextrins and things like that, Uh, but you might have some more opinions on that because I'm really thinking if I look at the total sugars in grams and divide it by four, it gives me the teaspoon level. So anything, anything you guys would be particularly uh, interested as well as the total sugar level to look at?
2: Yeah, we just generally don't eat food with labels. <laughs> so <laughs> if the food, and which, which maybe leads me into my next question was just about fruit. So in the paleo world, I think we advocate a lot that people eat fairly low carb, fairly low, like low packaged food, not processed food. But I mean, then there's a whole raft of foods that are quite you know, sugary or carby oh, will um, blood sugar, or do yeah. spike your blood sugar. Exactly. Um, so what's your, what's kind of your opinion on fruit and starchy vegetables?
3: Start with fruit. I'm going to say a piece of fruit a day is okay for most people. I did some studies on um, sugar consumption at one of the larger private hospitals at Melbourne, Epworth Hospital, um, and I, I did a study where we recruited 158 staff members to a study and we looked at their sugar consumption and we looked at their fruit consumption. Now, their sugar consumption, and all this is documented on a, a website which I set up called giveupsugar.com. So, essentially, as I mentioned before, the average Australian is having 30-plus teaspoons of sugar. Uh, the group at Epworth of staff members were averaging 15.6 teaspoons of sugar. Mm-hmm. Uh, their average age was 41. They were mostly female, about 88%. Uh, their average weight was 71 kilos um, and their average height was somewhere around about the 165 or 6 centimetres giving them uh, the, gr- the group that enrolled for this study and anyone could enroll um, a, a BMI of just into the overweight range and most of these say typical average 41 year old women although they did range in age from 19 up into the high 60s don't really want to be a weight of 71 kilos giving them a bmi of 26 i mean they are classified as overweight for a start so uh it was very interesting to see where they were getting their sugar from and they were getting it they were surprised where it was coming from particularly fruit juice mm-hmm. um yogurt processed foods were the big surprises. Of course, we all know it's in cakes and cookies and and biscuits and sweets and desserts, but there were definite surprises uh, in, in particularly areas of fruit juice and yoghurt, things like that.
1: Mm, I think one of the things I have the biggest... Um beef with is being told regularly to eat more fruits and vegetables and I think we kind of have this opinion that that's you know if we eat more fruits and vegetables we're eating more fresh food that's good for us but because so many people um, for some reason grew up not liking vegetables they'll alternate or they'll shift their focus over to fruit and start eating a lot of fruit thinking that's really healthy um and i personally i can't get away with that i um you know if i have i agree with you i i sort of limit it to one piece of fruit a day um but i think a lot of people take it too far and will have five or six pieces of fruit and not have any veggies because they think they're getting their fruit and veggies because they're lumped into the same category is that something that you find with people
3: look totally and that 15.6 teaspoons that didn't include fruit oh, a, they were wow. averaging one they were averaging 1.9 pieces of medium-sized pieces of fruit a day as well and if that was an apple and an orange they they've each got about 4 teaspoons of sugar in them so we've just turned our 15 teaspoons into 23 teaspoons mm. of sugar and uh so yes i used to eat four or five pieces of fruit a day myself and i used to think that was healthy
0: yeah. So
3: um, Rod, I don't think I don't think that's the case,
0: Rod. One of the I guess uh, worries I would have is if people are just turning over the labels and looking at the sugar levels in their foods, they're going to start moving towards I guess the you know the sugar-free alternatives and the you know the the stuff that's marketed as you know sugar-free, which obviously has all those sugar alternatives in it, um, which obviously you know many of those aren't what we would consider paleo. Uh, where do you sit in terms of those sugar replacements, those artificial sweeteners?
3: Right, I don't think. Like a lot of things in dietary science, we don't really know the final answers. We maybe not know for decades and decades. If you use sweeteners as a bridge to get you off the 15 or 30 teaspoons of sugar a day, I'm okay with that. If that makes it easier for you to do that, um, I'm fine with it. But in the long term, these are foreign chemicals. Uh, We don't really know what the long term results are. But as I say, if you ask me which is, I'd say the sweetness are the lesser of the two evils. Um, but I think over time, uh, one should aim not to rely on them.
2: Yeah. So you just touched there about how having to have a bridge, which... Um, obviously we know that sugar is quite addictive. So we know that when people decrease their sugar, they go through withdrawal symptoms and stuff. Do you maybe want to talk about the addictive properties of sugar and how, um, kind of the side effects people get when they decrease their sugar?
3: Absolutely. I, um, I spent quite a lot of time talking with an epidemiologist from Auckland called Simon Thornley and uh, he's written a book on sugar addiction and he describes many people who get, when they withdraw their sugar, they get frank, uh, um, frank symptoms of, uh, you know, serious symptoms of of lack of, of sugar in their bloodstream. You know, they get shaking and they get sweating and they get incredible sort of hunger and things like this. I think people vary a bit and some people show those, uh, those addictive signs, um, and, and others don't. Um, yeah, so I think when you come off sugar, you've got to be ready for that. And you've also got to have plenty of good healthy food alternatives to tide you through. Uh, coming off so that you don't get those withdrawal type symptoms.
2: Mm-hmm. So, what would your like top three tips be then for people who are trying to quit sugar that they should, you know, be prepared um, to do what to get them over that that addiction?
3: Well, I'm going to advocate that they get enough protein in their diet, uh, and that's probably around about the level of twenty percent of your diet should be protein. Now again I think the average Australian's having about fifteen percent. So we need a little bit more protein. But you can't have too much protein because if you have excess protein, the body is unable to store that. And we convert that back to glucose. Yeah. yeah. So so in a way excess protein is a bit like carbohydrate or sugar. Uh so that really only leaves us one place to go, and that's fat. And uh, I think it's very important that we should be having more fat in our diet. Um, Otherwise, because uh, fat uh, satiates you, it makes you feel full. When you go on a higher fat diet, you actually feel you don't have to eat so many calories per day oh. so even though calorie per gram fat is higher than protein and carbohydrate it's much more satisfying besides that we need it to absorb all sorts of important vitamins and nutrients mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. so um rod you and i share a mutual friend the amazing uh, jimmy moore um and he's been doing an experiment on ketosis can you explain to our listeners what that's all about because i think that probably right. really ties into the fat thing quite well doesn't it
3: Absolutely. Uh, as many would know, Jimmy Moore has lost an enormous amount of weight, like I forget whether it's sort of 70 or 80 kilos, and kept it off going on a, a ketogenic diet where he produces, where he eats a very low-carbohydrate diet and a moderate-protein diet and a much higher-fat diet than most people in our community could entertain. Uh and what happens instead of using sugar and carbohydrate as a fuel source we start burning that fat and that fat releases ketones which can be burned in virtually all cells in our body uh, so when you're on a ketogenic diet you feel a lot more energy weight comes off you can measure the Ketones in your system, either using urine tests, which are simple and easy, but regarded as probably not as reliable as doing a fingerprint test. Um, And I've certainly gone on a ketogenic diet and spent a number of months daily measuring my uh, level of ketones, lose weight, feel great, Uh, um, eating a very low carbohydrate diet with a lot more fat. Uh, you do get a little bit of a ketony breath, which is sometimes called a sort of a sweet breath. I'm fine with that. I like it when I've got that sweet breath because <laughs> I know I'm, I know I'm burning fat. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's well worth, uh, If if somebody really struggled to get healthy and get their weight in the right range and they have yet to go on a ketogenic diet and monitor their levels and get their blood ketone level at a level of at least 0.5 millimole a day or more, then I don't think they've given losing weight a proper go on this approach of low-carbohydrate, moderate-protein, higher-fat
0: so, Rod, you've sort of spoken a little bit about percentages there, but just to be really clear, like, what would be the rough percentages of carb, protein, and fat for, say, a, a regular sort of low-carb diet versus what you were saying was a very low-carb or a ketogenic diet? Like, what are we looking at for each of those?
3: For a ketogenic diet, I'd be thinking uh, maybe about twenty grams of carbohydrate a day. That's not much. No. Um, you know, that's uh, that's in some salad vegetables, um, you know, and a little bit of, um, you know, a little bit of other vegetables. It's pretty low. Mm. But there are some people in our community, in order to lose weight and in order to get healthy, they're going to have to get down to that. And I would say that pretty well everybody in our community now um, has grown up on a fair diet of sugar throughout childhood. Uh, I grew up in the 50s. There was a fair bit around then. I think there's been a whole lot more around from the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s and forwards. And that's, that's caused damage to people and it's caused damage to their insulin sensitivity. Mm. And for a few unlucky people, it's caused enough damage that the only way you can undo that and lose weight and get healthy is to really go very low in your carbohydrates. It's not such a bad diet to be on 20 grams of carbohydrate. But if you ask me what a low-carbohydrate diet is, well, for a start, the average Australian's having about 300 grams of carbohydrate a day. Mm. I would describe a low-carbohydrate diet as anything below 100 grams a day and maybe below 50. And I guess we've all got to do our own experiment to see how low we need to go to be healthy. But I would recommend for anybody struggling, jump right in at the deep end, go straight down to 20 grams a day. It might take a little bit of getting used to, and you want to do this for a month or two, um, but the results are likely to be striking. Whereas if you put your foot in just into the shallow end and just start off at 100 grams a day, uh, you might not get the results you would like. It might be very, very slow and you might be discouraged and give up. So my advice would be try it, monitor it, give it a good length of time and find out all you can from people who do it and people who know about going on a really low-carb ketogenic diet.
1: Yeah. And so um, when we're talking about that, just sorry to continue on with the ratios, but with the protein and fat, how would you split that up?
3: Um, As I say, um, protein, about 20%. Right. Um, Close friend, Christine Crono, who uh, lives in Queensland, has written the Fat Revolution book. Mm -hmm. She tells me she, she thinks women on average need more protein. But some men tend to overdo the protein. You know, a whopping great big steak, etc., could be excessive. So, um, I, I guess we've got to work it out for ourselves. Mm. But probably around about twenty percent is the right amount of protein. It takes a little bit of working out. Okay, you know, say I have a steak. How much of that? Uh, if I say I have uh, a hundred gram steak. How much protein is actually in that? Yeah. It varies on the cut of meat, but it's usually about 25 grams right. in a 100-gram piece of steak, which amazingly actually has more fat in it than uh, protein.
0: Yeah. Well, I better just apologise in advance for our paleo show catch-up we're having tonight because I've got some massive stakes. In it tonight, so. <laughs> Don't ever apologise for massive stakes. <laughs> but, um, Rod, uh, when we're looking at uh, then uh, athletes, like people who are doing sort of higher levels of, of exercise or perhaps endurance athletes, how would you change that? Would you still keep that relatively similar or would you adapt that as well?
3: I think there's quite a lot of evidence coming out that athletes that adapt the uh, a very um ketogenic high fat low carbohydrate can be very competitive and i noticed the recent uh, brownlow winner in the uh australian football league uh, gary ablett uh, says he's on a paleo diet yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't seem to be uh in- doesn't seem to be affecting his performance in no. any negative way. Uh, there's also some there's also some wonderful talks around from a bloke called uh, Tim Noakes, mm-hmm. Doctor Tim Noakes from South Africa, mm-hmm. who uh, talks quite a lot about um, elite athletes and a lot of stories how some athletes are moving in the direction of this diet mm-hmm. because they get better performance possibly the only exception i might make to that um, is that if you're doing a real endurance event like a marathon or a longer event you may need uh, a few carbs just to keep you going through uh through the event uh, but I don't see any situation in training where you need to be high carb. If anything, you want to be low carb. So you're really able to mobilize, uh, fat stores and get the ketones out of them and burn them in your muscles to keep you going for those long endurance events. Uh, perhaps, but for, as I say, for Iron Man sort of stuff, uh, maybe that would be the one time when maybe you could reach for a gel or something like that to, uh, to uh <laughs> to keep fruit. you going
1: yeah
2: or, so, or a banana <laughs> well yeah because yeah, yeah. it's it's all about training your body to to rely on fat and then when you do need that extra performance you can supplement with some carbs to give it that extra boost i think is kind of what you're getting at there
3: absolutely yeah uh there's one other sports uh there's a sports doctor called dr peter brookner um he's He's been in sports medicine for a long time and he's the current doctor for the Australian cricket team. And he got onto this diet through his friend Tim Noakes in South Africa. He dropped from 90 kilos down to 80 kilos. He's about six feet tall. Um, and he has subsequently got uh, some of the Australian cricket team interested in this and uh, they are very happy with it. He'll be giving a talk in Melbourne on the 30th of uh of november i'm sorry if this passed by this podcast uh time goes to air um but uh there are people getting increasingly interested in this form of diet for elite athletic performance
2: yeah awesome now we're just about out of time but i wanted to give you a chance to maybe talk a little bit about the events coming up for low carb down under you said there's one in auckland
3: uh, yes. Uh, the University of Auckland are running a two-day sugar meeting at the University of Auckland in uh, the... 19th and 20th of February, that's a Wednesday and a Thursday. A lot of great speakers, Dr. Robert Lustig, pediatric oh. endocrinologist coming over awesome. from San Francisco. Cool. Uh, Dr. Richard Johnson, who's written books like The Sugar Fix, cool. a renal physician from Denver in Colorado, he's coming out for it. Have a look at the website uh, F-I-Z-Z, dot, org, dot NZ, and you'll see an impressive lineup of people who are going to be talking at that meeting, uh, with some serious public health ideas to really get sugar reduction throughout our community. Um, we're going to run a satellite, an extra day following that meeting. Um, on low carb and we're calling it low carb Auckland 2014 so that's on Friday the 21st of February it'll be at the Auckland Museum in the auditorium there uh, and we have a bunch of great speakers coming to that and have a have a look on the website at lowcarbdownunder.com.au And uh, click on the Auckland link, and uh, you'll get an idea of what's planned for that meeting. Awesome.
2: Awesome. Thanks so much, Rod. And I encourage all of our listeners to um, go onto our Facebook page and maybe share some of the stories that you've had about cutting sugar out of your diet, or maybe some of the resources that you've found really helpful, because I can honestly say this is the number one concern that or maybe not concern just maybe number one obstacle that people face is even when they go paleo they're still eating quite high sugar so it's really good if if all of you out there can share your experiences as well so rod i want to thank you i want to encourage everyone to check out your website and to thank you so much for uh, allowing us to interview you today
3: thanks very much much appreciated
2: Until next week, check us out on Facebook, share your story, and help to grow the Paleo Tribe worldwide.
0: Hi, this is Dr. Brett Hill from The Wellness Guys and That Paleo Show. How would a pair of Vivo Barefoot Ultras feel on your feet this summer? These guys are awesome and our good friends at Vivo are giving away one pair of their newest range to one lucky Wellness Couch member. Vivo Barefoot shoes feature a puncture resistant flexible, non-pitched sole and a wide toe box which allows the foot to move as nature intended. As close to being barefoot as possible. All you have to do to be in the running is become a Wellness Couch member by midnight Sunday December 22nd, Australian Eastern Standard Time. Membership is free and comes with a range of benefits. To become an official member of the couch go to www.thewellnesscouch.com and enter your name and email address. Merry Christmas from all of us here at The Wellness Couch and may be filled with great health and good times with those you love.
3: This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com.